G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host Dr Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel, there are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent Messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Doc Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book. I am so excited to introduce um, someone who should be familiar. If you've been um, listening to Inverse Podcast, then you should be familiar with Michael Ray Matthews. He is the Deputy Director of for Faith in Action. He is the host for the podcast Prophetic Resistance Podcast. He's the pre President of the Alliance of Baptists, a progressive movement for justice and healing. And he is the co-editor of the book, Trouble the Waters, a Christian resource for the work of racial justice. Welcome, Michael Ray Matthews, to the Inverse community. How you doing? Thank you, dear brother. It's very, it's very good to be back. I'm doing well, as well as we can be in a moment of great anxiety and questioning. Yeah, under these yeah. circumstances. And I, I want to just acknowledge and just say thank you so much for making time. I know that Right now, this is an especially busy time, and I appreciate you squeezing us in and to have this conversation with us. And, and so we, we've all been looking forward to just um, your presence with us. So thank you. Wow. Yeah, so I, I want to begin um, just thinking a little bit about your work. Um, in my book, obviously, I, one of the things I do is I differentiate between protest movements and community organizing. Can you share with our audience, I don't assume that everyone knows um, what faith in action is. Um, can you explain uh, what, what it exactly it is and um, how it fits into this framing as I'm talking about community organizing and movement works? And also you can even say a little bit about your own work and your role within faith in action as well. Certainly, certainly. So faith in action is a network. It's actually a network that's in uh, five countries, the US, um, Haiti, El Salvador, Rwanda, uh, we're building some projects um, in, um, in Ghana at the moment. Um, we are an organization, we're, we're a network of other nonprofit organizations that are faith-based, made up of faith-based communities that have decided they would collectively work on social issues in their communities or in their states, or sometimes collectively at the national, at the national level. We believe in building strong leaders who build strong organizations that have the power to actually um, bring about the you know systemic uh, change with you know innovative 
social policy. So it's all about policy change and all about building the kind of people power and organizational power that can make policy change. Um, I, I've been involved with Faith in Action for almost a quarter century now, coming up next year. Mm. Uh, for about half that time, I was a local leader, a, a pastor in congregations that were involved in this work. And then about almost 13 years ago, I joined the national staff and became a part of the national team mostly working with uh, faith leaders, rabbis, imams, pastors whose congregations were a part of our organization. Um, and my role now as deputy, I spend a lot more time doing less fun things, um, but I do get some, some opportunities to do some, some fun things with, uh, with clergy on the ground as well. Yeah, and for those that, um, just to make a connection between the reading and faith in action, for those that don't know, like when I talk about um, power interfaith, yes. um, that they are part of that bigger network um, that faith in action re represents. And so um, that's kind of my connection to all of that is through um, power interfaith who rooted uh, more in Philly, but have been also expanding and doing some good work in central Pennsylvania as well. That's right. Um, so... I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, you've been doing this work way longer than I've been doing this work. Um, and so I'm curious about your thoughts as I like frame and talk about the strengths and weaknesses of protest movements and community organizing. I'm just curious, like, how did you read that? Um, did you um, think it was it helpful? Do you think it was a little unfair in any kind of way? I'm just curious. Um, as someone who's just been doing this work for so long, how you interacted and, and responded to some of that. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of books out there that talk about this work or our organization um, in ways that um, have uh, triggered me in some way and made me say, now, wait a minute. I don't think you understand who we're all about. Um, no, this was actually quite a refreshing read because I think in some ways you're narrating um, in that chapter a wisdom that has become more mainstream in our organization, at least, if not in the broader movement. When I first got involved in this work, we were still called PICO, uh, okay. we were very clear. Like I gave you a very standard definition of what we do, that we, 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 we um, historically, we work very locally and we build local power with leaders, everyday people. We help them build people power and build organizations that can hold that power. And with that kind of institutional and people power, move innovative policy solutions that change things in people's lives. And we have sort of scaled that up over the past, what now 20 years since the turn of the century now. And we're this national network that's you know, organizing at multiple levels and trying to seek policy change. And that's a, that's a kind of lane that's the kind of lane that you operate in. And so, you know, when I was first trained in organizing 20 years ago, I was, was very clear, like, we do not do advocacy. We are not advocates for other people. We are, we are the people who are in pain and we're fighting for our freedom. So we don't do advocacy. Um, we don't do mobilizing. Now we may do some mobilizing work around some big meeting we're going to have, but ideally, our capacity to mobilize is because we've been doing good organizing with grassroots people on the ground. So we're not a mobilizing group. Uh, we're not activists. Um, we don't do protests. We don't do marches. Like, and we don't do legal work. Like there are like all these things that we don't do. Uh, but we do this one thing 
And I mean, the very orthodox among us were like, not only do we do this one thing, but we're doing the only thing that really matters. That's some white supremacy stuff, but that's... So <laughs> there has been a sort of unlearning that, that I think our organization has been experiencing really over the past 20 years. Like our decision to become a national network was the beginning of our sin. Like we started stepping up, going outside the lines as soon as we decided that we would not be hyper-local, but we would yeah. be translocal. So once you go to that level, you know, there's all these other things that come into play. Because if you're, if you're a national player, you're sitting at tables with folks who do advocacy. Most of our denominations that have offices in DC are doing advocacy work. Right. Um, you know, if you're, do, if you're trying to move something nationally, you can't fly all 3,000 of your leaders who work on that issue from all over the country to a place. And so oftentimes you have other people representing you in some of these spaces in DC. We're doing advocacy. We're often trying to work with other partners to mobilize all kinds of people to an event. You know, that's not, that's not organizing. And we have participated in lawsuits and we, you know, we, 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 we collaborate with other folks who are taking legal um, avenues towards change. Um, and then in 2014, we made this decision to go to a little town called Ferguson, Missouri and march in the street. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, not only were people who didn't know us in Ferguson wanted to know what the heck we were doing there, they didn't say heck, um, but we were wondering ourselves because we knew we were, way, we were way outside of the line. And I think, I think what has happened for us, I probably should talk about another arc before I try to come to a close on that. I think the other thing that was also happening at the turn of the century is that we decided to start talking about race. So the other yeah. thing we didn't do in this organization, and that was really like, you know, a very clear orthodox kind of understanding, like race is divisive or divisive, depending on how you talk about it. And um, I watch a lot of different TV from all over the world. So, um, and that you, should, you just should talk about these things. And I think our decision to start talking about race meant that we had to talk about other ways that people from different backgrounds and histories, social and political histories, um, understand the work of organizing. So that while we have historically been seen as a, a style of organizing that lives in the tradition of Saul Alinsky, right. and I didn't even know his name until I was in this work for 10 years. So when somebody told me I was an Alinsky organizer, I said, I don't know who that is, I don't know what I'm talking about. But, to the extent that we are seen as an organization who has, you know, has, has roots in that, in that tradition, this opening up of things around the scale of our work and the commitment to put race at the center of the conversation, and that we had to talk, talk about all the tributaries that actually inform our organizing, all the different ways that people approach organizing, especially people of color approach this organizing. Um, and, and that black folks in this organization were always not seeing themselves as Alinsky folks. They were always, you know, you know, standing in the tradition of big mama, standing in the tradition of those who had, who had come before them. And so I think that we're in this moment now where we recognize that the main thing we do is that thing that I said organizing is, but it's very clear that there's this tapestry and that we're actually yeah. weaving things, weaving things together. And in some ways it feels um, holistic. It feels right. 
integrated. It feels, it feels right. Um, I can't tell you how many times early on I used to tell people, people, especially black folks in communities, say, well, we want to, you know, we want to do some community development work. I didn't talk about community development. We also don't do that, right? right. <laughs> um, I went to some community development work and we're like, well, well, we can't help it. And we walk away. And I was like, we walk away from all these black people who are very clear about what their communities need and how they want to get there. And we're so orthodox about this thing that we do that, I mean, of course you're going to have this racialized outcome that there's not as many black people involved in this work because we're acting like black people don't know what they need. And they right. do. And they're already saying what it is. And so right. why are we figuring out how to be in, in relationship and in partnership with them? So I, I feel like we're, I feel like we as, a, as an organization, network and movement are in a very different place. And so when I read your chapter, I feel like you were describing all the kinds of things that we're doing, even though we're very clear about the thing that actually guides us primarily. Yeah. And that's, and what you've just described is how I know power to be, right? Mm -hmm. um, that that's the, um, the work that they've done. And they've been, I mean, in fact, it's been interesting as they tell their own story about as they more centered race and racial justice. I mean, they had, they lost some folks, right? Because um, not everybody wanted to stay at the table when they were making, um, being so committed to anti-racism and racial justice as a part of the work that they were doing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen that play out as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I do in this chapter, and I was even talking to some others about this, that I think even as I reread it, I was like, oh, Drew, you, be careful, Drew. Be careful, Drew. Watch yourself, you know. And that's my conversation around uh, voting, right? Um, um, I, was just, I was just saying, I forgot to say voting, so I'm glad we're going. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to, um, I mean, it's obvious, uh, I think it's obvious enough that um, hopefully for, for readers that uh, I'm an advocate for voting. I vote, I encourage, I try to bring everybody along as I can, as many people as I can. Um, and yet, you know, I also wanted to push on this subject, right? To get us thinking a little bit, to, to help us to see our participation in the electoral process differently than we see ourselves maybe um, as some of my hope. Um, not, to, not that again, that we would stop people from voting, but again, change our mindset about our, how we engage the formal electoral process, the system, and, and how, how do we think about the prepackaged platforms that we get given, right? And sometimes people just feel like you got to start and you just take and receive that, right? As the starting point for our political goals or even the language of conflating voice and voting, right? So struggling with things like that. Um, and just overall neglecting what I think sometimes are all these other avenues for social change, because sometimes we've just handed over that that's the way, the only way, right? right, right. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, um, Again, thoughts on how do you think about voting? How did you respond to me as I'm kind of wrestling? Because I'm, I have, um, in fact, as a friend of both Jared and I's is Nikisha, who I quote in the book, right? So this is, this is someone I know personally, yeah. um, and she does not vote, but like I know Nikisha is someone who's on the she's she's engaged, she's on the ground, grassroots, and so she's she's in my head whenever I'm having these conversations. Um, um, I don't necessarily end up 
ending where she is, but, but I do, um, I respect some of the questions that she raises that expands my political imagination. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we also did do really do much electoral, you know, work either Um, a little bit here and there, especially in California where we have ballot initiatives. And so we might back a ballot initiative, but 2012 was when we started really having national voter um, voter programs and campaigns during the midterm and the presidential years. So this is what our fifth or sixth circle around this experience. And, you know, I think initially we started doing it because we saw it as a way of building our base, that if we engage a lot of people that we have a, a larger base to, to, to organize on the other side of the election and actually move, and move power. Um, I think another lesson for us when we started digging into voting as a part, as a program, um, a tool uh, for, for, for our work was that we saw it as a way of also uh, strengthening the civic imagination of our base to imagine that not only what might we be involved in trying to get folks to turn out to vote and not for a candidate because we're a C3, we're a C3 organization, we, we, we can't um, um, endorse candidates, um, but, we, but it could be the way that some of our leaders might begin to dis- discover their own sense of call to, to, to service um, to their communities through, through running for office. Um, I think the way that I think about voting and our organizing work at this moment is I'm, I guess what I've learned over the past four years, at least at the national level, is that voting, voting helps the community sort of set the playing field for the kind of work that they want to do. And, you know, I think the way we talk about voting, we talk about voting as if it's the be all and end all. Um, and that voting, if you, just, if you just vote, it will change everything. And I think, I think we know, those of us who had expectations of President Obama know that we had to do more than vote to get President Obama to do things that we wanted him to do. And there are some things that we wanted President Obama to do that he didn't do because we didn't actually organize, organize to, to make it, to make it um, impossible for him um, to, to not do those things. Um, these past four years made it very clear at the federal level there's, we're stuck. Like we just cannot move. We simply yeah. cannot move. Right. And so, like the vote becomes this really important tool uh, to really create a different, a, a different kind of um, way for us to have access to our, to our system. You know, access to our representatives. Um, so I think it's just really important to to recognize that the vote is not the thing. It, it is, it is a, it is a tool. It is a, it is a resource. It is one expression of what I call um, one expression of a public life. So I think at the, end, at the end of the day, the call of Jesus is a call to a public life. There's so much, and I said this on the podcast interview with you and Jared, there's so much about what Jesus does is, is in public. And so I think we have to ask ourselves as Christians, what does it mean for us to cultivate a public life? And that could take on many different forms and that can engage many different practices and tools and approaches. And so for me, voting can't be the, the be on end all, but it can be a really important tool. Like we do, not, we do not talk about ourselves as an organization that is like an electoral player, but we are, we yeah. are. 
I mean, we just, I just got the count. We had a goal of reaching, having 1 million conversations uh, over this cycle and we've surpassed that. I just, that was the last thing I heard before I got off the Zoom call with the senior team. Um, and Bishop Royster from Power was on there as well. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we're just, we're just really clear. Like this is a really important tool that we as organizers need to engage to help us build the kind of power that we need to, to make changes for the people in our communities, the people who we love, the people whose backs are against the wall. So I, I think there are a number of folks who are making very clear decisions to, to not vote. And I, and I understand that. Um, I just want to be sure. I don't, don't want to be sure. It's not my business. But I'm interested in whether or not people really understand what their decisions are to right. vote or to not vote. Like right. I've talked to a number of young people just like, I'm not voting because I want to communicate to the elected people that, that, um, that, that, I don't, that I don't believe in them. And so my question is, so first of all, who's your audience? Which elected people are you trying to say this to? And are they hearing you, right? right. Um, right. If, that's, if that's all this is, I can already tell you that, you're, that you, didn't, you didn't actually accomplish that. Um, but voting is a personal choice. So I'm not, like, I'm not trying to shame people into voting, but I do want people to understand how voting can be really important. Yeah. And even, I mean, just making me think about like, I always say, you know, if I didn't live in Pennsylvania, I'd probably be voting third party sometimes, right? Just to push the Democratic Party, right? Yes. Um, Though I I feel like that's not an option. That doesn't make sense in in my context, right? Um, But but I do feel like, yeah, just even thinking more strategically and thinking about how voting can align more with the movement work and organizing work that is happening at the grassroots level. Like what's the synergy between those two things, right? I think that, um, that, that there's gotta be more and more of that happening. So I'm glad, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's just that it's more than voting, right? Like, like if you want to vote third party because you want to send a message, you actually, your one vote is not going to send that message. Like you right. end up having to do some other things. Other stuff, right. Some, you engage some other public practices Right. That help you make that point clear because that could be a whole bunch of other people that are right. deciding to do that with you. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, you know, one of the in fact, you could almost say that the 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 origins for the book, me even writing the book at all, a lot of it came out of when I was speaking to churches around trouble. I've seen my first book um, and getting really good, positive responses. But people are like, you know, seems like you drew you're inviting us to do like racial justice and at the grassroots level like what does that mean what does that look like how do we engage you know um and so you know in some ways this chapter was at least that portion of me trying to at least just open people's imagination that there are these strategies that are available to folks to engage at the grassroots level um but i'm curious like if, if you have groups coming to you and they're seeking to get involved um what are some of the first things you say to folks as they're wanting to, especially thinking at the congregational level, wanting to get involved in justice work um, in their neighborhoods? Well, the classic organizer question is what keeps you up at night? Um, <laughs> I, I don't ask that question. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to ask questions about um, where does it hurt? Um, where is the pain in the community? Um, what are the stories of that pain? Um, 
how how much is how much of this is connected to a common experience, specifically if we're talking about a congregation. So I, I mean, my, my orientation as a pastor is to sort of try to understand the spirit of this congregational community, right? Because I'm thinking that this congregation needs to make decisions that are in line with a sense of its collective consciousness. And yeah. so I'm 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 gonna be trying to draw out questions that get at like that collective consciousness. And so how much are these stories of pain a real part of the congregation's life? Um, how, much of, how much of this may be things that have to be actually opened up in the congregation? I know on my, the congregation I last pastored, um, you know, uh, ended up working on mental health justice, but it was only because we had this altruistic understanding of wanting to work on issues that affected other people until our, all of our research and engagement helped us recognize that mental health was a very real issue in the life of the congregation and that our capacity to move on that issue collectively was really rooted in the fact that there was there were real stories in the, in the congregation of pain and there was a real vision um, and history of towards justice around these kinds of things in the life of the congregation. So that we felt like this was the spirit speaking to us that this was the right path for us to take um, in terms of our organizing work. So now I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask where's the pain? I'm gonna ask what are the stories behind that pain? I'm gonna ask about um, the, sh- the, the ways in which that pain is shared. Um, and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get clear about like, what's, the kind of change, what's the kind of change that you think will be necessary? Like if you could, if you could, if you could um, imagine the solution to this, to this challenge, if you could imagine what life would be like on the other side of this challenge, what does that look like? And then we start trying to understand the, the levers of power and the arrangement of institutions that are involved in that issue. So like with the mental health justice work, we had to recognize that the state government decided where people who live with mental illness live, right? While, while the county government was, the, was charged with the responsibility of taking care of people who live with mental illness. Um, so we had to understand all these institutional arrangements and try to figure out, like, if we're going to have an organizing plan around this, what are all the systems that are involved? Or maybe, or maybe the way to solve this problem is not about um, a typical organizing campaign. Maybe there's some other pathway to get there. And so that, that would be typically what I would do is to try to understand it. I would try to fit it in an organizing box because I'm wired as an organizer. But um, I've learned enough to know that some of these, some of the solutions to uh, challenges that people face in community, um, in communities, can actually be remedied uh, through means that are not the same as organizing. Yeah, that's good. Any last thoughts? I'm curious if there was anything that we didn't touch on from the chapter that was of interest to you before we uh, wrap up. Well, I. I just want to underscore, and I think I was walking into this conversation about um, Erica Chenoweth's research, um, the importance of recognizing the power of nonviolent direct action. And um, I think there's so, I mean, in this moment with so much anxiety um, in the U.S., there's a lot of folks in the faith and justice world, the movement world, who've been doing a lot of sort of nonviolent, you know, civic, civil disobedience training, a lot of nonviolent direct action training, getting folks ready uh, for, for whatever is about to about to kick off here in at least in, in particular places. Um, um, and most especially folks are looking at your state, Drew, um, right. yeah. um, And so 
I was I was just I was I was happy that you included that in there because I don't think that people in my organization historically understood that we were a part of a, a global tradition and that there are global stories to explore and understand about the power not just of organizing but of but of this kind of this kind of direct action that Genoeth and others have have. Um, have researched and, and, and written about. I just wanted to appreciate um, the ways in which I felt that you, I, I feel like eight, chapter eight for me is the chapter that's called, are you about that life? Um, mm-hmm. Are you about that public life? And yeah. if you're about that public life, there's like this whole list of, of, um, of practices um, that one can engage um, right. if you are about having a public life and living right. a public life and doing the work of public theology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hopefully all that, everything, not everything, but so much of the book is leading up to, right, these practices and actually engaging and opening up our imagination for actual ways to engage practically. Um, and that, yeah, congregations that have felt stuck, not sure what to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this is the entryway in and that they, they can look, start looking out and, doing the work to say, who's doing the work in our communities, right? Uh, where can we join in? Who can we partner with? Who can we collaborate with? Um, and yeah, be about that public life. And so, yeah. yeah. I, I'll, I'll just say one other thing. I think the yeah. other really important thing is that um, congregations especially need to see this kind of work as a part of a, of a process of discernment. Yeah. Um, and that it's not just like, you know, this person's really smart and clever. And so I'm going to go do this thing that they're doing because I'm, I'm impressed with what they're doing. I I really do believe that the spirit is at work in our, in our congregations and that we need to really be about discerning what the spirit is saying to us and what our contribution to this moment and to this work is. And for some people, it's not going to be organizing. It's going to be something else because there's something about the story of that congregation, the gifts and skills um, in, you know, in, in that congregation that might lead it down a path that's a bit different. Um, and no matter what approaches you take to this work, if you aren't creating space where you're engaging in theological and ethical reflection on the work itself, right. you can get burned out with this work. You cannot really get clear, not only about how, whether or not this is actually making real public change, but about whether or not this is actually um, integral to who I am as a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. And so I just want to name that because, you know, you can, you can fall in love with this work right. and not do the kind of discernment and not yeah. kind of do the kinds of practices that allow for a congregation to continually discern what the spirit is saying to them through the experiences that they are having leaning into this kind of work. And I just feel like I needed to say that um, yeah. before I got off. That's good. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for dropping in. We just deeply appreciate you and um, blessings on your ongoing work. Um, And yeah, we we thank you. um, Thank you. And it's it's, it's good to be back back in this space. I recognize some faces, including my my brother, Ross, uh, from San Jose. Good to see you, brother. (laughs) Blessings and peace, everybody. All right. Thank you. Take care. If you want to be part of this growing global community, 
You can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone, wherever you're found, be it in remote communities in the Kimberley or a township in Cape Town or downtown Berlin or on the south side of Chicago or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you. So let's work to do that together. See